welcome to episode four of Speaking for the Trees. This is an Animal Crossing New Horizons fan cast. Uh, this week we'll be discussing Tom Nook. Is he a delightful character in a peaceful video game or is he an evil personification of capitalism? Just kidding. This is an environmental advocacy podcast hosted by two environmentally educated bumpkins. This bumpkin's name is Ellie. That one over there is Lauren. Uh, for the record, Tom Nook is just a delightful little creature. <laughs> I am just a creature. I cannot change this. <laughs> um, this week we're talking about invasive species. I promise we're qualified, sort of. Uh, what specifically are we going to discuss today, Lauren? Well, we enjoyed doing mini profiles of the pollinators in our last episode. So this episode is all mini profiles. So first, Sick. Ellie is going to tell us about kudzu? Kudzu? <laughs> and how it's pronounced. <laughs> yes. Kudzu. Which is known as the vine that ate the south. Then I'm going to inform you what the hell an emerald ash borer is. Spoiler, little green beetle. Ellie's going to come back in with our cuddly friend who absolutely wrecks ecosystems, the house cat. So, looking at you guys, Caliban and Wheezy, no escaping, you're part of this. And finally, and most unsettlingly, I am going to talk about the sea lamprey, which, pretty sure, straight out of Men in Black. Uh, God, they're... I think I looked at one picture when you said that was what you're going to do, and it was horrifying. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Uh, I like how we always end on like, so the, in the past, this episode in the past one, we're just like, let's pick the creepiest thing we can. <laughs> That's no, I picked it. I picked it for a very good reason. We'll get into it. Like, it's going to be a really good finisher. It's going to be so good. It's just going to, oh, no, I'm excited. Um, so obviously this is shaping up to be pretty dope and informative as hell. But before we tell you about all those species, let's do a quick timestamp. We are recording this at 814 PM on uh, May 9th, 2020. I forgot that uh, the corresponding number to the number five <laughs> was like, I was going to say 5 9 2020, and I was like, that's not how speech works. Uh, hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, my friends, you are not quarantined like we are now, slowly losing our mental faculties. But before we anyway. get to that, Ellie, <laughs> what are you drinking? And are you burning a candle? So I'm not burning a candle, but I am aiding my loss of mental faculties by drinking wine. Um, <laughs> I am drinking, let's see, I, I found this at the grocery store. What if that was actually how I said grocery? Anyway. We wouldn't uh, be friends. It's called, <laughs> it's called the Prendo Pinot Grigio, the 2018 vintage. I have not decided if I like it or not. I've still drank most of the bottle, so clearly I don't hate it. It's not cooking wine. It's like a very middling, I'd say. Okay. I'm really good at picking out like middling okay wines. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, and I'm not burning a candle because they tend to just give me a headache if I'm in an enclosed space with it. So okay, I'm just hanging out. That's fair. Smelling my own bo. Great. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. <laughs> You're welcome. So I am drinking. Uh, it's called Virtue Cider, Washington Cherry. So um, it's apparently made with Washington apples and cherries, and it's actually very good i really have been liking it it's a sweet cider because that's all i ever want to drink is just sweet drinks you're valid and my current candle is called oh god i shouldn't have picked this one i don't know how to say this word it's like <laughs> is it french it's o-u-d wood oudwood who's to say and cardamom 
that's honestly the main scent I'm getting off of it. So it's mostly just a cardamom candle. That sounds nice. Yeah, it is pretty nice. I just don't know how to say the ingredients or scent ingredients. <laughs> so that's kind of like a warm, like, yeah, spicy. Yeah, warm, spicy, comforting. That's what we need right now. To TBH. Yes. Okay, so... So before we jump straight into our little mini profiles of some choice invasive species, I'm going to just quickly explain what an invasive species is. And to do that, I'm just going to directly quote the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Uh, an invasive species is an organism that causes ecological or economic harm in a new environment where it is not native. Invasive species can harm both the natural resources in an ecosystem as well as threaten human use of these resources. Invasive species are capable of causing extinctions of native plants and animals, reducing biodiversity, competing with native organisms for limited resources, and altering habitats. Basically, organism that's, that is in a place that it shouldn't be because it's not native to that place and is wrecking shit for both us and everything else that was supposed to be there yes like a fifth grader in a first grade class i don't know that's there's wine in my body it's <laughs> an incoherent example okay here here's a coherent example yeah have you ever gone to like a, a a birthday party or like a sleepover and someone has like a really like a teenage older kid older sibling i forgot the word for sibling <laughs> <laughs> and they just like keep coming in and ruining your party that's what invasive species are like <laughs> this is a good example because neither ellie or i have siblings <laughs> I, I to the point that i forgot the word for siblings <laughs> God, this is like i promise i promise i have a master's degree <laughs> ellie do you remember when we went and saw the last jedi I straight up forgot about sisters existing, and I definitely thought that yeah, Rose I thought was they were lesbians. <laughs> I thought they were married. <laughs> the first two people, I'm like, oh, oh, okay, so this cute little uh, couple is piloting. Oh, they're sub sisters. <laughs> forgot those were a thing. <laughs> Whoops! I thought the exact same thing. I had no idea. <laughs> oh my god! And we both we both had the same thought at the same time while sitting next to each other. <laughs> All right. Anyway, we're going to talk about kudzu now, not lesbians in space, which honestly, should we just talk about lesbians in space? <laughs> nah. Okay. So I have some pictures in the uh, drive for you so you can get the, the kind of a, the gist of this v vine. Basically, if you go anywhere south of Mason-Dixon, now nah, not the south of Mason-Dixon line, like south of Richmond, Virginia, um, you'll see in the summer, everything is just covered with this one plant. South Carolina just looks like this. This is just what South Carolina looks like. Big vine um, eats many things. It's yeah. It's it's um. I didn't write this in my notes, but it's also called Mile a Minute. Oh. Um. So yeah. So so if that's the that's the southern thing that we call it. Oh. And I actually grew up, I think, hearing it called that. Uh. Anyway, but I, for some reason I didn't put it in my notes because I'm a dumbass. Anyway, so kudzu is a vine that is native to Asia, specifically Japan, Eastern India, and China. And it's called the Japanese arrowroot. And in America, it's called mile a minute. 
in these places, it is actually grown on purpose. Chefs use the tuber of the plant, like carrots, in their cooking. Uh, farmers will allow their cattle to graze on the leaves since they're protein rich. And Kudzu also provides some important ecosystem services in addition to the agricultural ones. Uh, just a quick refresher, an ecosystem service is a benefit that humans get from a natural environment. So basically, the kudzu plant has a deep, strong root, which keeps soil in place. So that's an ecosystem service it does for us. Oh. Uh, this is great for controlling erosion in rainstorms and flooding. And we'll uh, talk about that in a bit. Also, because it's a vine, it covers a lot of ground. So not only does it hold the dirt vertically in place, it holds it horizontally in place as well. Yeah, I can see why it would hold on to a lot of this dirt. Yeah, because it's so fucking big. Yeah, <laughs> call that three-dimensional ecosystem services. So let's describe this sucker real quick. It's a vine with a woody stem. It grows high all the way to the top of the tree canopy. It can grow up to 80 feet in length. Is that like horizontally, vertically, both ways? Uh, in length, so from root to uh, top, like longest reach oh, part of it. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay, yes. So like if it's if it's growing on the ground, it'll grow horizontally. If it's growing up a tree, it'll grow vertically. It doesn't matter. I see. Is that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So the leaves are lobed, a.k.a. they aren't just in an oval. Their outline is curvy, kind of like a maple leaf would be. Mm. That's what lobed means. Um, and they are kind of a limey green color. They tend to just cover entire areas so that the landscape just looks like it got flavor blasted with the same leaf over and over and over again. In our the drive that I have our pictures, um, there's one picture where it's just like engulfing a school bus. So in 1876, Philadelphia held its centennial exposition where the Japanese arrowroot was displayed. Um, so people got to see it. 29 years later, the United States recognized it as forage, which just means that farmers could now grow it for their livestock to munch upon. Soon, the U.S. recognized the same benefits as the Asian countries that Kudzu is from did and started growing it as a soil stabilizer, eating it, using it as medicine, etc. So you, as you probably guessed from the moniker that we mentioned earlier, the vine that ate the South, or its um, fun little uh, nickname that I, I called it earlier, uh, Mile a Minute, this honeymoon phase of the relationship between North America and the Kudzu vine did not last. Uh, here is a quick timeline for you. 1953, Eisenhower is president and my mom is born a Taurus and it shows. Also, Kudzu is removed from the approved list of erosion control plants. You just alienated every single one of our Taurus listeners. Shit, you're right. I'm sorry, Taurus. Listen, I worked with a Taurus Tom. He was great. Hey, listen, as a fellow Earth sign, I love all my Taurus friends, okay? I'm, I'm joking. Also, as a Capricorn, astrology's fake. Um... 1970, the Beatles have disbanded. Also, Kudzu is officially labeled a weed. In 1997, Harry Potter has been published. I hope this doesn't cause people to be annoying on Twitter. Also, Kudzu is now on the federal noxious weeds list. Ooh. Nowadays, it is listed as a noxious weed in nine states, banned entirely in Connecticut and Massachusetts, and is a quarantine weed in Washington State and Oregon. Don't ask me what that means. Didn't look it up. <laughs> so... Huh. How did we get here? What happened to our multi-talented vine friend? Where did we go wrong? Well, first we done planted it on purpose. Uh, by 1946, 300,000 acres of the stuff have been planted Holy in the United shit. States. 
Uh, for those of us who have no fucking clue what an acre is, I am one of those people. I converted it to square miles and square kilometers. 30,000, three, sorry, 300,000 acres is the same as 469 square miles or 1,214 square kilometers. In fact, in the first half of the 1900s, the government provided over 85 million seedlings to landovers all over the American Southeast. That's For the so purpose of planting much. it. Yeah, that's communism right there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so... <laughs> Once we had done planted it, the kudzu vines got to work reproducing and spreading. Some plants pick one or two seed dispersal methods. Maybe the seeds need to go through an animal's digestive tract, like berries do. Or maybe it relies on the wind to spread it, like a dandelion. Uh, and I, for my citation here, I wrote, I remember this from high school <laughs> environmental science class. I actually have citations in my notes. It's a whole thing. I write it like a thesis. So here's the thing about kudzu. It looked at all the available seed dispersal methods and said, I'm going to put all my stat points into dispersal. That was a video game and RPG reference for you. So basically, it can disperse however the fuck it wants. Uh, wind? Check. Water? Sure. Animals? You bet. Human activity? Sign me up. A piece of the root gets separated from the main plant? No problem. We can make a holy holy ass fully formed kudzu plant post haste when do you need that by oh hey you know that soil you removed earlier that had kudzu seeds in it wherever you dump us is fine we will be making plants soon <laughs> it just it just poured all of its stat points into dispersal wait i hear you saying shouldn't the local plants be able to outcompete the kudzu and that's a fair question unfortunately the answer is a solid no <laughs> Because this is an invasive species uh, episode. <laughs> then not only did it put invest stat points in dispersal, it also invested it into its physiology, aka its body parts. For starters, the vines grow stupid fast, mile a minute. Um, its leaves have a ton of surface area, which blocks out sunlight for other plants. Also, its metabolism is crazy fast, which lets it make new tissue and heal damage at ridiculous speeds. Wait, is it Captain America? Huh. Is that relevant? Yeah. <laughs> is that is that a timely reference? Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't uh, know. I don't know if it shit. counts. <laughs> we should have started this podcast when Captain America the uh, first Avenger came out before we met. Anyway, <laughs> because it's a vine, it has a ton of little nodes on it that can become roots if you if that part of the plant is separated, like a pothos plant. So if you hack at it and just leave the hacked pieces there, they'll just root on the ground right there. You've just made more plants. You fool! That's what they wanted! <laughs> Hold on, you're saying now. Maybe oh climate change will take care of it. Bad news. It does respond to CO2 by making more plants. <laughs> it likes it. It likes the CO2. Uh, and also, I... it likes it can't, it's not cold tolerant, so the more warmth there is, the more it can spread <laughs> to the north. So... Yeah, oh that God. all being said, the effects of kudzu on the environment around it are actually not that full, well understood. Generally, the scientific community agrees that since it's an aggressively reproducing and spreading plant, there's probably an effect on local nitrogen cycles. It affects trees' ability to get sunlight, probably. And the local biodiversity, a.k.a. how many species there are working together in an area, and even just what's in the air of a local area. So we think that it affects all those things. Like, oh, like it affects air quality because um, there's like, so much oh, yeah. of it. I mean, it's a lot. Of, yeah, there's that's a lot of plant that's probably kicking out a lot yep. of VOCs. We're also... Which are volatile, volatilized organic Ooh, carbons. Yay, that was my thesis. 
it's just it's just or it's just yeah. organics that yeah. are in the air uh we're also aware of a pest that can live on the plant called the asian soybean rust which is an issue if there are any soybean fields nearby so that's another reason we don't like it hmm. um i would actually also like to note something here a lot of the articles i read to do this research were written before 2013. where's all the kudzu research did we stop caring I switched off of Google Scholar to get to the bottom of it, and in 2015, Smithsonian posted an article about how old sentiment about kudzu eating the South was blown out of proportion. First, it's become this staple for identifying Southerness. Like I told you, this is just what South Carolina looks like, and that's true. Like, kudzu is just this, uh, it's like the lobster to New England or corn to Ohio. Like, it's a plant of some cultural significance. Would you, would you agree that corn is pretty much synonymous with Ohio? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at some That's... point kudzu became this point of pride to the south huh. um, it also seems like previous accounts of kudzu land coverage were either incorrect or exaggerated as well uh, rather than covering millions of acres this Smithsonian article asserts that the kudzu's coverage covers more like 227 acres sorry 227,000 acres oh my god <laughs> <laughs> different numbers yes it is by a factor of a lot <laughs> um, as of 2015 that is with a growth rate much slower than previously claimed not to mention that a pest that feeds on kudzu was introduced in 2009 which has been killing kudzu vines since then um, i'm getting oh. two stories here one that kudzu is terrifying and taking over everything and choking out life in the south and the other that kudzu is whatever and it lives here now um <laughs> Uh, so this is where it gets weird. I straight up can't find anything more recent than 2015. Wh what's up with kudzu, y'all? It seems like maybe we overhyped it and its natural predator showed up and started fixing it for us. And we all collectively said, let's never talk about this on the internet again so Ellie can't wrap up their segment. <laughs> so hopefully it's just chill now. <laughs> In conclusion, I think it's chill maybe. <laughs> Humans are really good at killing things, so it's probably fine. Wait, okay, do you know what the what's the natural predator of the kudzu vine? Do you know? It's oh, okay shit, I didn't actually write that down. I'm so sorry. Let's see. The pest that feeds on kudzu, source number nine. Okay, so there's an article I read in the Smithsonian Mag that probably mentions it, and I just forgot to uh, call out the name. If you want, while you're reading your segment, I can look it up. Okay. Yeah, so you can okay. go ahead. Uh, in conclusion, kudzu, probably fine. Maybe... Don't plant it on purpose? Uh, it seems like you don't need to plant it on purpose because it's already here. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, do whatever medicine stuff with it, but don't plant it on purpose. Okay. So we will now be moving on from plant to bug, insect. Uh, so I'll be talking about the emerald ash borer. So the emerald ash borer, it's, it was a pretty big deal in Michigan a few years back, so anyone who comes from that area may know quite a bit about it already. So the emerald ash borer is a beetle that originally came from Asia, and it's thought that it first arrived in wood packing material used for consumer goods. It was first discovered in southeastern Michigan in 2002, but it has since spread to 35 states and DC. That is a so lot of states. Yes, it is. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed from the name, the emerald ash borer is known for boring into ash trees. 
So the beetle will lay eggs into existing cracks in the trees, and the hatched larva will then create S-shaped burrows into the tree. This is one of the signifiers. So if you have an ash tree that dies, you can look for these burrows, and that's generally how you can tell if that's why it died. They then pupate over the winter and then create D-shaped burrows as the fully grown adults emerge in spring. The adults I found it. live <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the Japanese kudzu bug. That's just what it's called. Cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a build up. <laughs> I'll start listening now. Uh, the beetles are bad. Got it. Keep going. Yeah. The adults live for three weeks and then they begin this cycle again. And this is incredibly destructive for the host trees. The tree will generally die after one to three successive years of being infested. One to three years in a row. That is that what that means? Yeah. So it's basically like they'll get you know infested one like if the same time every year one to three years. Yeah. Like yeah. Basically, it depends on how like how old the tree is and stuff. Like how long it can survive being burrowed into by these beetles. So how did it spread around the U.S. so thoroughly? Well. For starters, just because it was identified in 2002 doesn't mean that that was the first infestation. It's thought that the beetle came to Michigan during the 1990s, and it took about 10 years to even realize what had happened. In that 10 years, a lot of ash trees were being planted into housing developments in the Midwest from nurseries that ended up being heavily infested. And just one infected tree can easily spread the beetle community-wide. Additionally, a lot of these infested trees would die, and then they'd get made into firewood, and then people would, you know, ship that firewood around, and that also contributes to the spread. It's so interesting, because it sounds just like, like, disease vectors in human diseases, and then we're just talking about something. It's like the disease of the trees, but the disease is a bug? Like, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, because, like, I mean, lots of things can, like, bore into trees, I guess. But, like, this is... It, this it this is acting like a pathogen. That's so cool. Yeah. I, and... Why do I like the invasive species? Why am I like this? <laughs> anyway, since its first discovery in the U.S., the Emerald Ash Borer has killed tens of millions of trees in North America. Oh, my God. And, that's so bad. <laughs> and actually, the mortality rate of ash trees in southeast Michigan, which is actually where I'm from and it's the epicenter of where it all started, it exceeds 99%. So That's so high. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. It's basically just entire n- neighborhoods and communities of these trees are just dead and just gone, and there's nothing to replace them. So I actually grew up when all of this was, like, hitting the hardest, and I'm not joking when I tell you that it literally changed, like, landscapes. <laughs> and... I'm not exaggerating that when I say that I don't think I saw a live ash tree until I left the state. I'm a Google what an ash tree looks like. You keep going. I also Googled it and I was like, yeah, like, I remember growing up with this where it was like people had these trees that were just dead in their yards. And you knew why. That's like, no wonder you're such a spooky little bitch, though. Like... (laughs) Oh, it's like the quintessential tree that people try to draw. Like, it has a very circular canopy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like a really popular tree, which is why it got, you know, it got into nurseries. And then so it was like so popular to plant just around in 
neighborhoods oh, and, it has, and stuff. It has like pair. I'm. It seems like I'm a botanist, but I'm not. It has like these little paired, like lime green leaves. It's really cute. I like it. Yeah. And one of the top three results, Emerald Ash Borer. Uh-huh. Yeah, because uh. this bug is a lot. <laughs> so what has been done to contain it? Well, in Michigan, uh, this is mostly what I looked into, so you'd have to go state by state, and that's way too much work <laughs> for a You're valid segment. Uh, you so. pick something close to home. That's fine. <laughs> Both of yours are close to home. <laughs> yeah, I only know about Great Lakes things. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I picked a southern vine, and I'm from the south, so it makes sense. Yeah. Well, in my defense, Michigan is also where this... It Overall, it's the state that got the worst hit, I think. Fair. Um, so, first of all, the sale of young ash trees was completely prohibited. And at oh, one geez. point, if you had an infestation, it was mandatory to report it to the state. Um, many state-level restrictions on the transport and sale of firewood came into place, and... It was only in 2018 that the Emerald Ash Borer interior quarantine was lifted in the state so of Michigan. So from your childhood until two years ago. Uh-huh. That is a buck wild. That is yeah. so long. <laughs> yeah. And res- residents are still encouraged to not move firewood at the risk of sp- spreading the Emerald Ash Borer, but then also other pests and diseases um, that are less prominent, I guess. And to be fully clear, this is not because the problem is gone, like the lifting of the quarantine. It's more an admission by the state that the problem was identified far too late for any kind of quarantine to be effective. Yikes, you don't like to hear that. Yeah. Especially in the context we're in currently, which is COVID-19 time. (laughs) Yeah, generally speaking, the best thing that the state can do at this point is to try and establish more mixed forest tree species. Um, And this is particularly important in more urban areas. I mentioned that the ash trees planted in developments were a big cause of the spread. Part of why that made things so much worse is just that ash trees were such a popular choice of tree for these urbanized areas. They do really well in them. And that means that large swaths of Detroit are now still full of dead trees. As ash trees, they were a really popular choice for replacing the elms that died of Dutch elm disease back in the 1950s. <laughs> Y'all can't get your break up there, huh? Yeah, apparently. No fucking trees for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's I, funny because trees are like supposed to be this hardy thing that like well, they'll be go- they'll still be there when we're all dead. And in, De- in Detroit, nope. Yeah, I started looking into Dutch elm disease and I had to really reel myself back in. I was like, I'm getting so off track here. But it's just, God. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so planting mixed forests is like kind of the best thing that you can do because that even if one ash tree gets infected, then that, you know, reduces the chances that it spreads to all the other ash trees. It's that's like, like if you, of- it's like if you have instead of a bunch of of immunocompromised people just walking around spreading the disease to each other you have a bunch of people who have the vaccine and have healthy immune systems standing around not getting sick and it kind of diffuses the issue it's basically like because there was kind of like a high high percentage of trees that were ash trees and that just didn't help things like yeah that was actually a way better example than anything that i can come up with so i'm good at analogies except for when i'm not (laughs) 
<laughs> so one of the other methods of containment is biological control by introducing certain species of stingless wasps that attack established emerald ash borer populations. And they've apparently been released in at least 25 states and have been pretty effective. The I can't decide are... if that is playing God or genius. The wasps are natural predators of the ash borer, as the U.S. has no native species to perform that function. Mm -hmm. And there are other methods like traps and pesticides, but I find them less interesting than the wasps. And we have two more <laughs> species to get through this episode. <laughs> Is that the end of your segment? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You're like, anyway, fuck those. Let's talk about wasps. Anyway, I'm done. I mean, the wasps, like, basically they're doing, like, some population control. The problem is, like, having a natural predator to eliminate an invasive pest doesn't mean that you're going to completely eliminate that pest. It just or you'll it just get more of the natural predator that gets rid of everything else but the pest, and then they're working in cahoots. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they were pretty... I mean, I think it was, like, U.S. Fish and Wild... I don't want to say. They were pretty careful about it. Yeah, they like. were extremely careful. There were, like, five specific wasp species that I didn't... Yeah, that were, like, you know, candidates. I'm looking at this picture of the uh, tree with all the borings in it, and it kind of looks like art, but, like, in a creepy way. It's also yeah. kind of a cool fossil. Yeah, it's also a dead tree in a neighborhood that's going to have to oh. be quarantined and very carefully disposed of. What is the third uh, picture I'm looking at right above your sources? It's the like this third gooey... picture is of the larva. I don't like so, it. Please yeah, so delete it from the document. Just so that's what it looks like boring <laughs> through the tree. It looks like a string of... It looks kind of like a tapeworm, right? Yeah, it looks like a worm in a tree. I don't like it. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about something less gross, but sort of more But yeah, anyway. Sad. Oh, I don't know that I actually finished my thought about the wasps. Oh, but basically, oh, like, by, oh, I was just going to say, like, by introducing a natural predator to the, like, established communities, I guess, of these emerald ash borer populations, you're not going to completely eliminate the emerald ash borer. Like, you're just going yeah. to be able to control the population so it doesn't get too crazy, but you're not going to be able to completely eliminate it, which yeah, is... Yeah, we'll never eliminate this thing. That's the thing about invasive species. The best we can hope for is control over the population. Yeah. So that's, there's like the, the other methods, like pesticides can do it, but pesticides get really expensive. Like yeah. I was reading something of, like they have to, or at least like one of the pesticide trials that they ran was like injecting it into the trees. And there's so many trees. It's really hard. Vaccinating a tree. <laughs> Basically, yes. But I it's, love so it. it's, it's very complicated. The wasps apparently work pretty well. Um, in the places that they've been able to implement them. But it obviously nothing's going to completely eliminate this problem that we have created for ourselves. Whoops-a-daisies. Anyway. Speaking of problems that we're creating for ourselves, um, I'm going to talk about a pretty controversial, quote-unquote, invasive species, uh, the domestic house cat. Uh, in our document, we have two pictures. One is one of my cat, and the other is of your cat. Yeah. <laughs> They're both very cute. Um, well, my cat is actually Ian's cat, who I'm also going to call my cat. Anyway, I am going to tell you something you probably don't want to hear, listener. And um, that is if you have an indoor-outdoor cat or just an outdoor cat, and you live anywhere other than Southwest Asia or Africa, you are actively contributing to the destruction of the ecosystem around you. 
which is a thing I had to tell someone on Discord earlier today. I was like, you shouldn't have outdoor cats. Oh, God. It's, um, you, you shouldn't have them also because it's not safe for them. But that's a personal opinion, I guess. Yeah, we can talk about that after I talk about all this other stuff. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> You're going to have a lot. So the domestic cat, as we know it today, is a descendant of Felis sylvestris libica, which was a species of wild cat native to North Africa and the Fertile Crescent, which is Iraq, I think. There have been other domesticated cats around the world, but the, the Felis catus is popular around the world today, share this ancestor. So how did they uh, accomplish this feat of feline global domination? <laughs> Caliban, I have a question for you. Where are you? I'll have to answer it myself. So we put them to work. When ships would go on long voyages to other continents to explore and gather resources or dump a bunch of prisoners off to fend for themselves, such as Australia, um, they would employ several cats on their ships to take vermin. And I mean literally employ. They would, like, seek out cats and put them on their ship. Once the ship landed, the cats would make their way onto land, multiply, and get to work feeding on the native wildlife. So we know how they got here. But just how bad could our cats be? How can cats cause so much damage? Feral cats are apex predators. This is hard to believe because the domesticated non-feral cats that we know can be complete dumbasses. For example, my partner Ian informs me that one time he watched our cat Caliban lay completely complacently as a mouse crawled all over him, not even bothering to swat at it. Another time, <laughs> this is just an excuse for me to tell you silly things about our cats in case you couldn't tell. Another time, Lauren and her cat Wheezy made eye contact for 10 seconds as Wheezy slowly licked the router. <laughs> and I was there for that and it was fantastic. <laughs> Also, she has attempted on multiple occasions to eat rocks. She's so fucking stupid. I love her. <laughs> These are not the actions of an apex predator, we say to ourselves. Here's the thing. On Australia alone, feral cats are responsible for the extinction of seven mammal species and are adversely affecting 35 bird species, 36 mammal species, seven reptile species, and three amphibian species. That's so many species affected. And that's just Australia, too. Over here in the United States, the leading cause of species endangerment is non-native invasive species preying on the populations of the endangered species, and cats are at the top of that list for efficient predatory invasive species. In island habitats, cats are often listed as the sole responsible party for extinction of native species. Globally speaking, domesticated cats have hunted 33 species to extinction. And it's not just feral cats, either. Feral, stray, and outdoor roaming domesticated cats are all capable of damage to their local ecosystem's prey populations. So even your cat, who lives sometimes in your house and sometimes outside, is part of the problem. More animals die from being killed by cats per year than by being run over by a car, running into a building, like like hitting a building as a bird. Uh, who uh, I see. How they yeah. I see. Okay. I was I, I really had some questions about that one. Running into a building was mostly just birds. Um, or being poisoned by humans like rats. According to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute's own Dr. Pete Mara, our study suggests that they are the top threat to US wildlife. They being cats. So there has been a ton of discussion surrounding the management of cat populations. As I'm sure you've guessed, it's been a pretty controversial and heated discussion. I'm sure half of the people listening are yelling at, my, at yelling at me right now, probably on Twitter, saying, but my cat would never, blah, 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 blah. Yes, your cat would. Your cat is a predator. They do great predator things. Even if your cat is a dumbass, they are still capable of doing all sorts of shit. 
<sighs> Conservationists and government bodies have tried to implement measures to reduce cat populations, but animal rights groups and cat owners push back hard against any attempt to curb populations of cats via euthanization for obvious reasons. We think they're cute and we like them, and that's fair. Both Lauren and I are cat owners and cat lovers, so we certainly sympathize. In fact, while I was writing this paragraph, Ian said, they can eradicate Caliban over my cold dead body. <laughs> so... With the public's hackles up protecting our cat babies, what are we as environmental conservationists supposed to do about the populations of feral and stray cats causing most of the damage? Also, that is erroneous. I am not an environmental conservationist. I am just some person with a master's degree in environmental engineering who is good at researching stuff. Uh, I'm not actually a trained conservationist. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, that, There's a disclaimer. I shouldn't have written that that way. A lot of different control measures have been tried in a lot of different places, but there has never been a truly universal attempt by any governing body to eradicate feral and stray cat populations because of this public pushback. I don't really have any success stories to share with you today, but I will share some of the measures that have been tried. <laughs> Both of my segments today are really unsatisfying. I'm so sorry. So... Eradication is a scary word to most people vis-a-vis -vis cats, and that's completely fair, because when I googled its definition, I got, quote, the complete destruction of something, unquote. <laughs> but is that what we actually want to do with cat populations in the wild? So some common cat population management strategies include trap, neuter, release, rounding up feral and stray kittens and adopting them out to people, and trap, euthanize. Obviously, it's that third one that gets people all riled up. People don't want to put animals down, kill shelters have this huge stigma, However, the first strategy of trap, neuter, release isn't working. Large populations of cats, even if a lot of them are neutered, are still incredibly efficient hunters. If they are alive, they are hunting, is the thing. As long as a breeding pair of cats exists that aren't neutered, you get the same problem in a few years. Trapping and adopting kittens is a wonderful idea in theory, but that has a lot of man hours. And pay isn't just going to ha like, there's just so much pay and man hours you have to put into it, and it's just not going to happen. We can't even pay to put in new bridges in our fucking U country, okay? Like, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So that leaves the third one, which suffers from the exact same problem as the second. The third one was trap euthanize, and it suffers from the same problem. Too many man hours with the added issue that it's controversial as hell, so no one wants to put money into it. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you here. <laughs> one thing humans could do is prevent their actual pets, indoor-outdoor cats, um, from interacting with the outside environment. So at some point, I am going to have to talk to my Aunt Mindy about this because she has an indoor-outdoor cat named Kobe. Yes, it is after the basketball player. And that's the hard part, right, is convincing these humans that their cat is having an impact. I think I can probably get through to my Aunt Mindy. But I, won't, I don't look forward to that conversation, and I doubt anyone else looks forward to it. As for the stray and feral cats, I don't have the answers, but more research is definitely needed, and once scientific consensus is reached, a unified attempt at dealing with this issue needs to happen. You know, cats don't care about state lines, they don't care about county lines, they just go wherever the hell they want, they're cats, right? So we need to acknowledge the scientific consensus and just do what they say. And we're really good at acknowledging scientific consensus and unilateral approaches to environmental issues in this country, so I'm sure it'll be fine and it'll be handled and it's not a big deal. Right, Lauren? <laughs> she says during the COVID pandemic where people are tr protesting because they want to get a haircut, even though the scientists are telling them to stay home. God. <sighs> Anyway, I, I didn't write this in my copy, but I do want to mention I didn't actually find cats on an invasive species list per se. Like, they're not universally listed as an invasive species, but in the invasive species discussion with the scientific community, they're often brought up. 
so I thought it was necessary and interesting to talk about them. So hopefully I didn't piss off anyone too much. Uh, I, I It does come from a genuine love of cats. I Again, but Lauren and I are both cat owners here. We, mm-hmm. we don't want, obviously we care about the environment and we don't want like the systematic destruction of the environment because of our cats, but also we just love cats. And the fact that Lauren, this is your opportunity to jump in here and talk about cat safety if you want. Yeah, so I have had cats growing up. Um, My cats have always been indoor cats. Uh, Just part of it is like by virtue of where I've lived um, in that it's just there's too many roads. It's not very safe for cats. A lot of the times, like even if your cat is like very good at being a predator, cats are also prey animals to a lot of like coyotes, uh, foxes, even like a raccoon can like fuck up your cat or just a car i'm pretty sure my uh aunt mindy's other cat Shaq, also named after a basketball player was hit by a car and that's why he died yeah like there's so many threats outside and that's not even to talk about pests and diseases like you can back if your cat's interacting with the outside then there's a chance that they're interacting with feral cats who might have things like fiv and i know that there's a vaccine for it wouldn't you rather just not have to renew that and it's a or maybe it gets in a fight with another cat or a bigger cat or a dog or like you said a coyote or maybe it just like gets lost and never fucking comes back like why why cats cats don't generally get lost they generally will have their territories established but it's just i mean there's just a lot of there's a lot of threats out there and if your cat is the kind of cat that you know some people insist like my cat needs outdoor stimulation which like fine you know some cats really benefit from that well, window. There's also other ways that you can do things like that. Like Set up you a can tent. Supervise them. Put them on a harness. Yeah, I mean, yeah, put them on a harness. Like putting your cat on a harness, like walking them around, like taking your cats for walks is like not weird. I swear. Um, <laughs> I've literally the one time I saw a cat on a walk, it was on a pink harness with a grown, I'm pretty sure cisgender straight man, and he just was just having a great time. And I was like, I love your cat. And he's like, thanks. And it was like the highlight of my day. Like, please make catwalking a thing. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish it was more of a thing. Even if your cat is, like, afraid of people and you don't want them to be interacting if with people. If they're afraid like, of people, then why are they going outside? Well, if they're that scared of, like, things. Just, <laughs> you can also you can also just walk your cat around a yard. Like, yeah. That's, like, that's plenty of immersion. Like, yeah, it takes, like, a little bit of time from you to go out there with them. But and- you agree to when you got a pet. Like, yeah. Also, uh, sometimes, so Caliban, uh, like about once a month, he gets into this weird thing where he really wants to go outside our door into the hallway. So once a month, Ian and I open the door and we supervise him as he walks up and down the hallway. And then we pick him up and walk him up and down the hallway so he can smell everything. And it just is kind of a way to be like, hey, Cal, like, yes, this is a place that exists, but it's really boring. Do you really want to be out here? And usually he just goes back in on his own accord and is like, okay. Like, he doesn't care. <laughs> Cats really, as yeah. long as they have you to play with and, like, a reasonably sized space, they really don't care that much. You can take them outside, maybe hold them, let them sniff some things, and then go back inside. That's really enough stimula- stimulation for them. Yeah. I mean, even if your cat's, like, if your cat's, like, used to going outside a lot. Baby steps, you know? Maybe don't let them out for as long, and then eventually they'll get used to being inside more. Well, I mean, you can't control when they come back. But you oh, yeah. can start 
walking them around on a harness. Like I said, like I think harnesses are a really underrated approach to this. Like, I also like the idea of putting my cat in a tent and just leaving it out there for a bit until it's like, I yeah, want to go back. That's inside. an option, although it's it's hard to control. I mean, your cat could always like get out of the tent, but my I don't cat, know. He's I think that I think that there's plenty of like immersion things that you can do. And if your cat's like bored in your house, like provide them other entertainment. Yeah, like, the idea that your cat needs to go outside is, uh, I think, an uninformed opinion like you really do there are other ways to <laughs> skin a cat uh, too yeah. soon but there but there are other ways to provide enrichment for your cat that don't involve going outside it is not it, the thing is it's a domesticated cat we specifically have a animal that we domesticated well it sort of domesticated itself but the point is it's a pet it's not a wild it is a wild animal and it's not it's too wild and it's also not wild enough like we just need to chill on letting our cats yeah. outside Anyway, let's talk about the sea lamprey because we're already at the 48 minute mark. <laughs> All right. So let's finish out our invasive species discussion with arguably the worst one on this list. The Hell sea yeah. lamprey. I'm so fucking so excited. This, the sea lamprey is a cartilage. Oh, God. It has cartilage. Move on. <laughs> Car- cartilaginous, jawless fish. They're usually marine, meaning saltwater, but they move to freshwater to spawn. So these guys are native to the Atlantic Ocean from labrador to the gulf of mexico florida and the atlantic coast of europe and the mediterranean sea these fish survive by being parasites on other fish thanks i hate it their mouth is basically a suction cup with many many teeth on it Mm. and after latching onto their chosen host fish the tongue will rub away at the fish's scales until they can bore in and feed on the blood and other bodily fluids thanks i hate it basically they're leeches for fish but much bigger thanks i hate it because they are generally 12 to 20 inches in length and weigh 8 to 13 ounces did i mention that thanks and i hate it (laughs) (laughs) so fun fact they have survived through four extinction events no right they've they've been doing their gross thing for 340 million years now no They're unkillable. <laughs> did you did you scroll down to see the pictures yet, Ellie? No. You should. Okay. So you can see. No. So you can see the mouth. <laughs> so you can see the mouth with many many teeth. Wait, what's this? Oh, it's hanging off of it. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, that's what they look like when they're attached to the fish. Okay, so it's mouth. Picture- that's not how I was into. Okay, so it's mouth. Is it like just one thing of teeth, like in Men in Black? It's like teeth, and then the teeth keep going backwards <laughs> into a hole. And it looks horrifying, and I don't like it. (laughs) Uh, So I'm sure you can see why these guys would be damaging. However, in their native habitat, the host fish have actually co-evolved with them, so they will generally not do too much damage. The problem is that these guys have invaded the Great Lakes, where the fish have most definitely not evolved with the sea lamprey. Mm -hmm. So these guys first got into Lake Ontario... Well. There's debates whether they were native or not, but it's thought that they got to Lake Ontario back in the 1800s, and they reached Lake Erie in 1921, and they had spread to the rest of the lakes by 1938. There are no predators for them in the Great Lakes, and that combined with high reproduction rates, about 100,000 eggs from each female. That's so many eggs! Well, it works out pretty well for the lamprey. Each single sea lamprey is capable of killing 40 pounds of fish during their 12 to 18 month feeding period. What the fuck? My cat is scratching. I'm going to wait for a second. (laughs) Stupid apex predator interrupting our podcast about apex predators. 
Well, it's not I'm a bad eye effects predators, but you know, I'm gonna, if my if my energy changes, folks, I'm lying down on my back because my back hurts. But I'm I'm still paying attention. Hey, are you done yet? <laughs> Here's that laying on my back energy. How y'all doing? <laughs> are you terrified like I am about the sea lamprey? Are those noises you petting her butt? I assume. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not editing any of this out. <laughs> You better. Can you fucking knock it off? <laughs> Meanwhile, Caliban isn't even in the same room as me because he hates me. That's no, just because Ian's not in here. Okay, I'm just going to keep going. I don't think she's going to stop. And if she does, it's not going to be because I told her to. <laughs> so only about one in seven fish would survive a sea lamprey attack. Oh, those um, are good odds. Yeah, and during the time period of their highest abundance, up to 85% of fish not killed by sea lampreys had wounds left by them. So part of why I wanted to include the sea lamprey in this episode is that in the Great Lakes, population control has been actually pretty successful. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So according to the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, it is the, it is, quote, the only example in the world of a successful aquatic vertebrate pest control program at an ecosystem scale. Now you said that like that's good, but I am so depressed by that sentence. <laughs> I mean, I was just saying, like, it's a unique thing. It's, like, cool that we have it so under control. It took a lot of work to get it this under control. We'll get into that. Okay. So, uh, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have instituted a control program that's reduced sea lamprey populations by 90% in most areas. Oh, damn. So, how do they do that? Well, it all starts with biologists assessing which tributaries the larvae of the lamprey are growing in. Quick, a tributary is a river that feeds another river. So it's a a smaller stream that feeds into a bigger stream. Anyway, so once that survey is complete, then lampricide, which can you guess what that is? Oh, wait, I got it. It's a chemical that kills lamps. Close. (laughs) Lampricide. So, I have a master's so, degree. Then lampricide is administered to these tributaries where they know that the um, larvae are spawning. So while the lamp- lamprey are larvae, they are filter feeders. So the lampricide kills them before they have even developed mouths to attack fish with. Oh, sick. Yeah. So this is the primary method that's used to control the population, but there's several other supplementary methods also used. One of these methods is the introduction of barriers to the spawning tributaries. Sea lampreys apparently can't jump very well, so low barriers can keep them from reaching the rivers that they lay their eggs in. And other fish species can either jump over the barriers or pass through these, they're called like trap and sort fishways, where the sea lampreys can be trapped and then pulled out. Traps alone aren't enough to reduce sea lamprey populations. Wait, I was about to say, is that that like someone actually has to man the trap and like look at what's in there and go, yep, that's a lamprey. Get it out of there. I don't have a good description on how those work. I'm assuming. I want that job. (laughs) I don't know for sure. I'd have to look into it more. But because they also have like traps set up, they'll have like a trap set before a barrier and those like will fill up with lampreys. And so obviously someone has to go out there and empty those. So I'm assuming that the, in general they do have like some sort of man hours associated with with these measures. Derek the intern out there getting bit by lampreys. Mm, yeah, 
I don't know that they care about humans, but yeah, essentially. So traps alone are not enough to reduce sea lamprey populations to the point that lamprecide is unnecessary for a tributary, but when it's used in conjunction with barriers, they can completely eliminate the need for lamprecide. Okay, so they use the traps and the barrier, and then boom, you don't have to spray chemicals everywhere. Yeah, it completely prevents the lampreys from getting through to spawn. Oh, that's sick. Uh, One of the other things that they use are pheromones and alarm cues, um, and those are used to increase the effectiveness of the other measures. So, for instance, pheromones can be used to lure adults to traps. Uh, oh, oh my thing. god, that's hilarious. It's like in cartoons when someone has, when fucking Simone's like, what do you want me to do, dress up and drag into the hula? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's that. <laughs> and then alarm cues are emitted by dead or distressed lamprey, and those can in- discourage from adults from trying to spawn in other tributaries that are maybe otherwise very good breeding grounds or are too difficult to treat via the other methods. Okay, so it's like if I saw a human dead body in a McDonald's, I probably would leave that McDonald's. More like if you smelled a dead body, because apparently they have very good senses of smell, it's probably to help them find their host fish. But, but it's like sort of like if you walked into a McDonald's parking lot and you smelled a dead body and you uh, were a sea lamprey and you knew exactly what a dead body smelled like, and so you're like, I'm going to actually just leave. I'm actually because there's peace a Burger out. King down the road, <laughs> except the Burger King is a trap that <laughs> are going. <laughs> it's going to catch me, and I'm going to be killed. In the this, metaphor, this metaphor really got away from me. <laughs> Honestly, um, as an IBS haver, it is a trap, and I do die if I go there. <laughs> oh, take a shot. I, I mentioned my IBS. Unless you're you're uh, alcohol free, in which case, drink some water. I love you. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I just wanted to finish up the essay, or what? No, this isn't an essay. <laughs> In conclusion! It felt, like, <laughs> it felt like an essay as I wrote the script, I guess. Um, Do you have your five yeah. paragraphs? <laughs> I just wanted to finish out by talking about sea lampreys, because they're actually like really well under control, and we spend millions of dollars every year, annually, to uh, maintain that control. Because it's a lot of work once you have an invasive species in an area to actually keep that population reduced to a level that your native species can live. So basically, you can't ignore it. You have to t- invest time and resources into it. And that's yeah, how and we have to deal with all this shit. And everyone needs to stop hemming and hawing about it and just do it for all yeah, these things. Yeah, the sea lampreys, part of why they're able to actually have this under control is because fishery is, it's like a... Oh, God, I forget what the... I think it's, like, something like $7 billion industry in the Great Lakes. So it's, like, financially, it's worthwhile for them to spend millions in getting the problem under control because otherwise, like, they will just devastate all of the fishing... All the populations of fish that uh, people are looking to fish recreationally, that, like, you know, industry is, like, looking to use and... Yeah, I bet if I was a sushi chef and I got... But a bunch of fish put in front of me that had holes in it. I'd be like, yeah, I'm not fucking, I'm not buying that from you for my restaurant. Fuck you. Yeah. So it's like we had a lot of financial incentive to get this under control, and that's why it's so as well controlled as it is. Whereas we should do an entire episode about the financial incentive to take control of all the things because there is one for everything. It's just that in this case, it's more obvious to people. Yeah. The way I'm like saying this, it's like, oh yeah, we just have it under control. It took us like four decades to get here. Like the what are they called? The 
Great Lakes um, Fishery Commission, they were established mostly to deal with this problem. And they've been around for like 40 years or something. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a a parasitic eel expert. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, but that's what I'm saying is like, it takes like, like it's under control because we spent a lot of time, a lot of money into research about it. And we continue to have to main, and we have to maintain like all of these measures to even, because like the second we stop, the populations are going to spike again. Like I, I, we're, we're being very serious right now, and all I can think about is how there's someone's job is to put sex chemicals in the water so that the eels are trapped in a box. And that's yeah, that person's job. Yep, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Conservationism like, uh, is fun. <laughs> yeah, the pheromones and alarm cues—they're called. Uh, it, I liked that they were called like part of like um, it was like a push and pull method of control. So like. Oh, that's kind of fun. It sounds like a 90s rap. Yeah, I I liked it. <laughs> but yeah, you just like sort of, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, you you take the the fish and you put them somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> that is how catch and release works. Uh, that is all of our content, I believe. It, hey, thanks, yeah, it is. Thanks for listening. And now here's our outro thing that I am going to record at some point. Bye. Bye. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend, Earth. Uh, so so that's our outro, huh? That's what we're going with? Uh, we'll do it better next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Trees Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin McLeod. Okay, love you, bye.